I want to thank you for coming, and uh, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series called The King and His Kingdom, which is going to be progressing through the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're in the Beatitudes, section 3 through 12 of chapter 5. So I want to encourage you, get your Bibles open with me. Let's look at it together. Let's see what the living Word of God has to say to us. And let's watch it transform. Lady Astor, I'm not really exactly sure how to pronounce her her name, once said to Winston Churchill, I'm going to quote her, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. Now that's a little harsh, but Winston Churchill was really known for some pretty cutting wit, he responded, quote, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, I, wanna, I want to assure you, I have no way of identifying with that right there, personally in my own marriage, especially since my wife is here at this service right now. <laughs> but I do want to bring out the fact that, let's, let's really get this too right at the beginning, the fact that every one of us struggles when it comes to keeping and making peace. My experience has been in a lot of years of pastoral ministry that there's a lot of us that really need this message. In fact, I'm going to say that a little bit differently. I think the majority of Christians are poor and terrible at peacemaking. And it does not set us apart from the world. And that is something that needs to change. It's been said that in all of the years of recorded history, about 3,700 years, the world has been at peace 8% of the time. Over that period, 8,000 treaties, this is an estimate, 8,000 treaties have been made and broken. It actually led someone to write, which I think is extremely insightful, Peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. Now, is that true in your life? I've had to ask, is that true in my life? Are you really, Christian brother and sister, are you really sincerely good at making peace? The world needs us. The world needs us peacemakers. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, calls us to be them. It's a radical difference between the people of the world. I'm going to give you four points in this sermon. I'm going to encourage you to progressively work with me to the fourth, where I hope that we're going to get more practical. But let me start immediately with the first, the radical distinction of a peacemaker. Now here we go, verse 9. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus preaching mainly to his disciples, but likely thousands of Jewish men and women, younger, I'm sure, were there on the slopes listening to this sermon. He's preaching, and he says this, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, a little bit of context. I keep telling you during this sermon that there are certain words that Jesus uses that would, have, that would have detonated in the minds of the Jewish people. This is one that unless you understand the Jewish background, you wouldn't know. So in 27 BC, Caesar Augustus 
declared the Pax Romana. Now that's Latin. Pax is peace. Romana is Rome. The peace of Rome. He declared it 27 B.C., just years before Christ came to this earth. And what it was was this. It was a ceasefire throughout the entire Roman Empire. There were no more battles going on. They finally brought all of their province into subjugation. But it was militarily enforced. So we've got a peace, lack of hostility, that is militarily enforced. And the whole world raved about it. And Caesar Augustus proclaimed himself God. But the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, had no power to create goodwill in the hearts of people towards other people. Except for anarchists, those wanting to overthrow a government, almost everybody wants peace. I don't know anybody that really would truly say, I don't want peace. But what they're wanting is the absence of conflict or war or hostility. That's the definition if you look it up in the dictionary. The absence of conflict, war, or hostility. That's the way the world thinks. This is to them what peace really is. Because, but the problem is it cannot get to the heart. The world cannot get to the heart. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now that nothing by way of wisdom from the world can truly get to your heart and transform it. It's just, it has no power. If you're pursuing the wisdom of the world, you're ultimately going to realize it cannot change you. Peace in the world is the freedom from an external disturbance. You can have that, by the way, of having a very large husband who cowers his wife into submission. There's no external disturbance, but she's hardly at peace. But that's the way the world thinks. Peace is the freedom from an external disturbance, like war, like violence, like mayhem. As long as there's no mayhem, then people feel like we're at peace. But there's something much deeper, much more beautiful with the word peace. And here we go. You ready? And I want, I want to get you now to what the Bible means by way of peace. I just painted for you what the world means. The, the world, it's the absence of conflict. But the Bible, it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more robust. It's a lot more beautiful. You've got to get to the Old Testament to see it. I'm going to teach you the word that you're already familiar with. It's called shalom. In the Old Testament, that's Hebrew mainly. The word for peace is shalom. And shalom was the Jewish greeting. It's the way that they would greet one another. And when they greeted one another, either hello or goodbye, it was used either way. It was more than wishing that the person has no trouble or had no trouble or is having no trouble. It means more than that. It's a hope that a person has a complete and a whole and a blessed life. Now, you get the difference, I hope. I'm going to press that a little bit more. Peace isn't the absence of something bad. It's the presence of something good. Now, I want to get that a little bit more to you 
that the word peace in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, shalom, which is really where Jesus is going in the sermon, it means more than I hope nothing goes bad today. What it really means is I do hope nothing goes bad today, but more than that, even if it does, I hope you experience wholeness and completeness and blessing even in the midst of it. You can have peace in the midst of trouble. Not the absence of something bad, it's the presence of something good. Now that's the word peace in the phrase peacemakers. It's a compound word. So let's get to the second word, makers. Makers is a dynamic word. It's very unique. It's very distinct. It's full of energy. It, is, it means the source of peace. It means that you create peace. So this is not talking, now listen, this is critical. It's not talking about being a peacekeeper. This is not talking about being an appeaser. This is not talking about acquiescing so that there could be peace. It's talking about the ability that every Christian has because the Spirit of God lives in him or her, the ability that we have to actually create peace, to make peace, to bring it into existence where there is conflict. See, Jesus isn't blessing peace wishers or peace hopers. Now listen, you're going to think this is off. He's not even blessing peace prayers. He's blessing peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? Well, here it is. Let's bring them both together. It's a person, it's a Christian who is able to work through conflict to help the person experience God's full blessings of well-being. I hope you're getting that. We're drilling down. I'm going to give you a lot more. This is just the beginning. I'm going to tell you what peacemaking isn't. It's not the peacebreaker. We've got peacebreakers in our church. I could be a peacebreaker at times. That has a win-at-any-cost mindset. Peacebreakers are often critical, nitpicking, easy-to-displease people. If you live with one, you know the air is charged all around you. You're waiting for something to set that person off. Oddly enough, peacebreakers, once they detonate, once they bring everybody into conflict, everybody into, into anxiety, oddly enough, the peacebreaker feels a weird sense of freedom, and all of a sudden, a calmness goes through them. Why? Because they broke the peace. That was their agenda. Usually demanding, controlling people are peacebreakers. If you've got two of them married to one another, well, then you've got the mad dance of conflict, and sometimes that leads to the destruction of a relationship. So we're really not talking about peace breakers, but we're not also talking, neither are we talking about peace fakers. Peace fakers are those who want peace at any cost. They'll avoid conflict. They want the fastest way through the conflict, even if it means swallowing the hurt, sweeping it under the proverbial rug. But if you swallow hurt enough, you're going to vomit bitterness. Peace fakers always end as bitter, resentful people. They create a shallow, superficial tranquility while underground in their heart flows a river of hostility it runs right through them and almost always it leads to not the destruction but the breakdown 
of a relationship. Listen, there's only three possibilities, and we could be all three of them at times. There are peace breakers, there are peace fakers, and there are peacemakers. There's only three. But we are to be peacemakers. Blessed is the peacemaker who understands the source and the quality of true biblical peace. Where does this peace come from? Well, that's point number two. Let's look at that, the, the true source of peace. Now, where does it come from? What is this? We already defined it, shalom, completeness, well-being, wholeness. But where does it come from? It's not something that I can materialize. This is not something that you can manufacture. When you make peace, you're taking what God has given to you and you're extending it to other people. You're teaching it to other people. You're not creating it out of nothing. Only God can do that. It's a commodity that belongs to God. He gives to every Christian. We wield it or we don't. If we're going to be a peacemaker, you wield it well. Where did it come into being? Well, listen, when God created creation, when he made everything that is in existence, he created it all perfectly to exist in peace. His shalom, complete blessing. Here's what it looked like. There was Peace between humans and God, Adam and Eve and God. There was peace between Adam and Eve. There was peace between Adam and Eve and creation. There was peace between parts of creation. There was nothing at odds. There was nothing by a way of conflict. This is original creation. It was, ex it was brought into being to exist with and in shalom. So God's peace is his product. It was his original intent. But then all of a sudden, a catastrophic impact occurred called sin. Sin shatters peace. You cannot have God's shalom with sin. It is irreconcilable. They cannot coexist. And with that sin brought it brought with it disorder, death, destruction. The very antitypes or the anti-products of peace. God's peace was to bring none of those. Sin brought all of those. So at the root, and now listen, ex extend this into your own life, friends. At the root of every conflict you will ever experience lies the destructive power of sinful demands and desires. There's not any exceptions to this. Now, how do I know that? Well, the Word of God, if you believe that it is without error, and I do, I hope you do as well. James chapter 4 says it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It doesn't say what causes some of them or most of them or a lot of them. What causes all of them? That's what James is getting at. Well, he answers it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You want something. I want something. And when they're not the same, here comes the potential for conflict. And if I'm not willing to yield, and if you're not willing to yield, it will escalate into a battle. And if that battle is unrelenting, it will break down and eventually destroy the relationship. The entire biblical story, Genesis to Revelation, is one in which God once again is bringing peace to his people. The means of peace. Now, I would hope you would want to know this, by the way. I would think that this is probably at least one of your top 
questions of your thinking mind. How do you get this peace? The means of it, the source of it, it comes from the cross of Christ. Now, why is that? Now, let's think through that for a moment. It is simply and beautifully and fully because it was at the cross that God removed our sin. And it's only when sin is removed that peace can exist. So it's at the cross of Christ, the Son of God, taking our sin upon himself. Listen, absorbing all the wrath that God has for our sin and in sin's place making us righteous. It is only the righteous, those made right with God, who can experience shalom. It's not manufacturable any other way. Colossians 1 speaks to the necessity of the cross, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And what's he doing? Making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. So if you've not yet been, and likely there's somebody here that I, this is true of, if you've not yet been to the cross, if you've not yet realized, you know what, I am bearing the weight of my own sin. The sin bearer, I haven't come to the sin bearer. His name is Jesus. I haven't put my faith in him yet. Then you're bearing your sins. You cannot experience God's peace in your life. You've got the pseudo pieces. You've got the false pieces that the world gives you, but it exists only when there's no external hostility. You don't have the peace of the heart. And you won't until you come to the cross where Jesus died for you. He is the, and this is rather the cross, is the precise means for receiving the peace of God. Isaiah 32 beautifully says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. So now we've got God's justice, Isaiah is getting at, his holy, now by the way, now listen to this for a second, because I think some of us don't understand justice. We too quickly bring it down only to justice issues, and that's important to fathom, it's important to work through, but justice starts vertically. Justice is God's holy demand that sin is punished. If God did not punish sin, in certain people, then he's no longer just. God hates sin. His wrath is stirred by sin. His justice, which is his holy demand that sin is punished. Listen, this is the good news. It was completely satisfied by the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God. And the effect is that if you come to the cross, you put your faith in Jesus, his justice is poured out on Jesus, and what you get is now his favor. You get his acceptance. You get his forgiveness. And you get his peace. Now, here's a verse I would encourage you to memorize. It is absolutely, stunningly beautiful. It says this in Psalm 85:10: Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness, which is the word justice here, and peace kiss each other. 
And this brings, it's, it's the union. Now listen, can I, can I use a, it's not going to be crass, but can I use almost like a reproductive union metaphor for a moment? When you've got dad, which is righteousness or justice, and you've got mom, which is steadfast love and faithfulness, it's going to produce children of peace. Christian, we have been given the most incredible gift, peace, shalom, which is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through want, through our Lord Jesus Christ. How? You've got to be justified by faith. The source of peace is God. The effect of peace is completeness, wholeness, and well-being, even if the external environment is disturbed, you can have that peace. Peacemakers bring people to the cross, even if they're Christians, and remind them of where their peace comes and how you make it in that relationship. But it gets us to point number three, the blessing that Jesus says that's in store for the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Now, ladies, don't get upset at that. That's just, it's sons and daughters of God. Children of God, as some translations say, it really does not get to this. Because you got to get back into Roman inheritance laws. Give me a minute and I'll get you there. Here's what Ben Franklin once wrote to John Adams. Blessed are the peacemakers is, I suppose, Franklin said, for another world. In this world, they are frequently cursed. And he's right. Now listen, look at me for just a moment because I want to give you a little bit of warning. If you're going to learn as I am trying to learn how to be a peacemaker, you are often going to be hated. You will often get the anger that two people had for themselves. And as you wade into that with God's shalom, it will both change and come to you. Do not be surprised when that happens. You can still be at peace even in the midst of that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Why does, this, why does Jesus call this a blessing? What's, what's the big deal about being the sons of God? What's so great about it? Well, the first reason it's such a blessing is only Christians are called the children of God. Did you know that? Did you know that those who are not Christians are never, ever, once in the Bible, ever called the children of God? There is something that when you and I live out peacemaking, it proves that we are the related children of God. It's the evidence that you have a new heart. It's the evidence that the Spirit of God is moving through you. That's the evidence that you are a son or a daughter of God. But the word called, now look what the blessing is, for they shall be called sons of God. Called means to be officially designated by rank or office. Let me give you a couple examples. As when a CEO is chosen or a captain is selected by the team's coach. So you're called into it, you're chosen, you're selected into it. But it also means to be owned, and that's the part I really want you to get. The word called means to be owned. When God selects you, he owns you. 
You are his. You belong to him. And it brings us now to the word sons, which in biblical days, to be called the son of someone, it is to be recognized not only as who you belong to, but whose character you share. Do you get that? The son of so-and-so in the Bible was not meant for as much identification as it was, this is who you belong to, and it's whose character you share. So to be called the sons of God is high praise. That means you're living like God. Now listen, let me put it really starkly for a moment. If you're not living peacemaking, if you've got a conflict that's in your life, now listen, brace yourself and handle this. Take it like a real man or a woman. If you've got a conflict that is in your life and it's been there for weeks and months, maybe even years, and you've not done everything you can to be at peace, then you are not sharing the character of your heavenly father. You are not living the peacemaker's life. You've just found a way to ignore it long enough to where it digs down into the bottom of your heart. But I'm telling you, unknowingly to you, it is toxic and it is pulsating junk spiritually in you. Blessed are the peacemakers when they feel like it. No, blessed are the peacemakers. It is hard work that you must be willing to do. A peacemaker shall be called sons of God. Friends, that's highest praise. That when we make peace, we're showing who we belong to. We're sharing the character of our peacemaking heavenly father but listen there's even more peacemakers shall be called sons of god it's a designation of high honor that proves are you ready it proves that you're enjoying all the benefits that come with being related to and an inherited member of god's family god's inheritance is coming to you you are a co-inheritor to jesus the Greek word for sons was a legal term. It was used for adoption, used for inheritance laws of Rome. It guaranteed the privileges, the obligations, the rights of the father are extended to that child. So when it says, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's making a guarantee. He's making a promise to you. Not only do you belong to God, not only are you sharing in his character, it's a guarantee that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you as well. You are a co-heir of Christ. Now you ready? You begin to forfeit the functional blessings of that when you refuse to make peace. So how do you do it? How do you become a peacemaker? That's the fourth and final section. In October 1983, this was such an interesting question to, to me. I can't tell you. This is, this is awful, actually. Man, should I tell you this? Is this the Holy Spirit restraining me? My wife's back there probably shaking her head yes. I will tell you this. I can't tell you how often I have imagined possessing the power of God, able to do whatever I want to somebody that does something mean to me. And I've often, isn't it terrible? Oh, stop it. You're just like me and you know it. <laughs> what would I do? And it amazes, every time that I, I catch myself thinking like that, it brings me to amaz amazement because Jesus had that power. 
And yet he was meek, yielded under the control of his father. He came not to do his will, but his father's will. That's incredibly potent power under control. Well, there was a question, though, that got me thinking of this. 1983, Psychology Today posed a very intriguing question. Here it is. If you could push a button and thereby eliminate any person with no repercussions to yourself, would you do it? All right, now come on, think through this for a second. Some of you are looking at me in a way that I'm really glad you don't have that button because I'm kind of thinking I would be eliminated. Don't act all pious. If there was a button and you could, by pushing it, eliminate anybody that was hurting you, that uppity coworker who is so snide, a little button that says, all right, maybe not eliminate her, but let me make her spill her coffee on her skirt. Or that person that gets in front of you on the highway, almost hitting your front bumper, a little button that all of a sudden, one, maybe four flat tires immediately, right? Come on, you've thought through this. I know you have. You're as wicked as I am. You know what the answer was in psychology today? You know what, how many per, you know what the percentage was of people that said they would, they would push it? 60%. That might be lower than you thought. 60%. Have you ever wished for the power to bring your justice instantly? Now listen, only those who have been given a new heart by God can live a peacemaking life. Why? You know there's a very deliberate order of these beatitudes. Not one of them is out of place. Not one of them was spontaneous. Not one was without great thought. Jesus put them exactly the way he wanted them. If you go back to the first one, he brings to us spiritual poverty, brings us to spiritual poverty. Why? He's got to show us that we're helpless in our sins. And then he moves us to cry out to him and mourn over our sinfulness. And then he convinces us to yield and trust in God in meekness rather than trusting in ourselves. Proven already in number one and two that we're inadequate. He's already proven that to us. And then he creates, number four, an insatiable hunger and thirst and desire to become righteous, meaning to be like Jesus in every way. And when we get that desire, having been brought to an, a self-emptied life, all of a sudden what he's pouring in is mercifulness. We are full of mercy. We want to help people in the misery of their sins. And we're wanting our hearts to be pure. We want morally moral cleansing to occur. We want double-minded living to come into single-minded devotion. And now, all of a sudden, after all of that, we could become those who, in the midst of an attack, become peacemakers. You've got to have all of that happening in order to want and be able to make peace. Only then can we be peacemakers. So let's turn to James. Can I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 3 with me, and we're going to finish out our sermon as quickly as I can and look at this. He writes this, James chapter 3, verse 17, one of the greatest passages on peacemaking I've ever read. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3, 17 through 18. Here we go. I'm going to give you really quickly 
seven ways that we could begin making peace. First is this. Peacemakers are first pure. There is no biblical book, by the way. Now, can you look at me for just a moment? There's not any biblical book that more clearly, powerfully, and closely expounds the Sermon on the Mount than the book of James. Almost everything he says, in fact, I'm going to tell you this, I think just about maybe everything he says is coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. And so he says, wisdom, by the way, you want me to define that for you? Wisdom, I'm going to tell you what it isn't. Wisdom is not getting a job offer, or two of them, and then figuring out which one to take. That's not wisdom. You shouldn't be asking for wisdom. You should be asking for discernment. Wisdom is the power of God to take double-minded people and help them to live single-mindedly so that your faith produces works. That's the power, that's the definition of wisdom. It is God's power, it is God's gift to take double-minded people and get them to single-minded living. So that if we call ourselves Christians, we live like that. So wisdom is the power of God to help double-minded Christians live with single-minded devotion. And what he wants, by the way, that, that defines, we saw it last week, that's what the word pure means. Blessed are the pure at heart means single-minded people who have an affection for God and are not being taken in more than one direction. This is purity. It's the foundation of a peacemaker's heart. And then James builds like a ladder on top of that. Peacemakers, number two, are then peaceable. Well, that seems redundant until I tell you what that means. The Greek word here has a basic meaning of right relationships between each other and God. So peaceable is somebody that's learned because they've got a new heart that is now pure to hunger, crave, and easily live within peace. Vertically and horizontally, peacemakers have received God's peace and they live to share it. They live to bring it to other people with an overarching desire to see people at peace. The peacemaker knows, by the way, that peace is not always possible. But it begins with us living it out, if possible, so far as it depends on you Live peaceably with all, Romans 12, 18. I'm going to tell you this really quickly. This is not unique. This is not even rare. But often, whatever sermon I'm preaching, God makes me live through it the week, the week that I'm preparing for it. And this last week, I got an email. Actually, it was a text from somebody that left our church angrily a, a couple years ago. And they had put on a Facebook post that expressed a lot of anger towards me. And I'm like, I, don't, I have no idea why they're angry at me. I truly have never been able to even understand why they left. I asked to get together with the, the husband. He said, no, we're, we're good. It's cool. We don't need to get together. I said, well, I really like to. When you get back from vacation, let's try to get together. He never, never wanted to get together. So I get this Facebook post that he's extremely angry at me. So I called him up and I said, listen, I, I don't know... I don't understand why you're angry at me, but if I've done something to offend you, I want to ask for forgiveness. So let's get together and let's see if we can work through this. Text me back. And he says, Tim, lose my number and don't ever call me again. I have no desire to get with you ever. 
And I couldn't believe that. I was shocked. And part, partly in me, I was sick. Because the world sees that in the church and laughs at us. We're no different than the world. There is no power in our testimony when we can't make peace. The only thing I knew was, listen, if you don't want me to, a text in the back, if you don't want me to call you again or text you again, I won't. But please, let's try to get together. We're Christians. I know you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Let's try to make peace. Now, I haven't heard, and I would invite you to pray for that. But listen, that's, it's not always possible to make peace. But you don't give up. You don't not try. Peacemakers endure because they want, they're peaceable. There's a desire in them that says, we've got to be at peace. God loves us, I'm going to love you. Number three, peacemakers are gentle. Gentle describes a person who, though wronged and possessing the right not to bend, nevertheless foregoes his rights, gives them up for the sake of peace. Gentle, listen, here it is. Gentle means you hold loosely to your rights. And you are so willing to give them up. If that's what it takes to make peace, it's gone. Because my right is not worth fracturing. This is not peace at the loss of integrity. It's not peace by sacrificing truth. It's having peace as the higher goal than being right. Number four, peacemakers are open to reason. This means not to, to not have our minds closed to reason, but be, but be willing to be persuaded by, listen, by truth. Not a fancy argument, but by truth. The way of a fool, Proverbs says, is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to his advice, or to advice. Number five, peacemakers are full of mercy and good fruits. God extends, remember mercy, God extends grace to those who are guilty of sin. Now listen, he extends mercy to those who are miserable because of sin. Mercy goes to misery, grace goes to sin. Peacemakers are merciful. When you see somebody in misery because of their sin, you're going. If you see a relationship that has been broken because of sin, you move towards it. You may get the onslaught of their anger, but it's worth it if you can help them make peace. Six, peacemakers are impartial. This word means not to be parted or divided, to be without uncertainty or indecision. In other words, a peacemaker lives steadily, taking one position, not rather, not taking one position in one circumstance, and then you get with another person, the other side of the argument, taking another position. Listen, you don't play off of each other. If you go into a marriage helping a couple make peace or two friends make peace, you don't change your tune depending who you're with. You've got the central truth of God and you are asking them to come to that. And finally, peacemakers are sincere, meaning without hypocrisy or deceit or hiding sin. We are who we say we are. If you're helping someone make peace, then you've got to be a peacemaker yourself. And God's wisdom is critical. It's essential if we're to live to be peacemakers. So we pray for wisdom that will purify our hearts from sin. Bring us out of mixed devotion to God. Give us a passion to be peaceful with other people. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here we go, and I'm going to end with this after I give you a blessing. Blessed, divinely satisfied, that means, are those who take shalom from God and extend it to other people, regardless of who they are. For they shall be called, they will be chosen, they will become sons, heirs of God. It's an amazing promise, and it's an amazing way to live. Let me end with this greatest blessing, perhaps, from all the Bible. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, wholeness, completeness, and well-being, regardless of your circumstances. Amen? Let's pray.